One of the most profound encounters we have in the Gospels happens when Jesus and his disciples are traveling into a region northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And it's when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, look, no one around here told you that. That has been revealed to you by my father in heaven. I love this encounter. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the son of God. And those two revelations about Peter, uh, from Peter about Jesus are the bookends of our text today. In verse 1, it says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And in verse 5, it says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And I just want you to see that when you're born of God, you believe. When you're born again as a child of God, you will overcome and persevere to the end. This is your assurance. Verse 1 deals with the new birth as you're born again into the kingdom of God. And verse 5 deals with that assurance of that overcoming life of victory and that perseverance in your life in the kingdom of God. There's a lot going on in between those two bookends here in our text, but I need you to hear me today. If you have those two things in mind and you believe those two things about Jesus, everything's going to be okay. No matter what you're going through, if your faith confession is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, listen, it's going to be okay. And I think some of you need to hear this spoken over you right now because you're in a state of anxiety and distress and fear and frustration or malaise with life and everything that is going on all around us. I just want you to say, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God, it's going to be okay. If you don't have that assurance, and you're toiling away under the tyranny of the burdensome commands of this life apart from Christ, can I tell you that you are here right now and and it's not an accident that you're here in this moment, watching this video right now? Perhaps God our Father wants to reveal himself to you like he revealed the nature and character of Jesus to Peter. Perhaps. Let me show you why I'm so confident that everything's going to be okay. Three simple words that are going to guide our time together today. Love, obedience, and victory. Love, obedience, and victory. Love. Let's look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Uh, Last week, I I talked about the shape of biblical love, and I used the image of a triangle to show you that, that God first loves us, and that because we have first been loved, we reciprocate that love to him. So he loves us, but he also loves others. And that what happens is, in this biblical shape of love, when God loves us and God loves others, and we begin to love one another, that we complete the picture of biblical love. If we understand this correctly, we are both then objects of love 
down on the bottom corners, but we are also conduits of love as we love one another. This is what I was getting at. Verse 1 says, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone who loves God loves those he's fathered. That's what the text is teaching us. So you can replace the titles on the corners of the triangle with me and you know that it's our Father who sets his affection and love upon us. I am born of the Father and then you see that it's also whoever has been born of him and and when we see that we are born of him, we love one another. Some Some of you get really excited about this stuff, I know. And you go, oh my goodness, we're talking about love again and I love love and I love you and I love God, and, and you love me, and we love each other, and together we love God together, and, and we love the whole world because God loves the whole world, and, and, and when we love one another well with God's love, then the world around us can see who God is, and I get really excited about the way that we get to love one another because God loves the world, and I love the world, and I love you. And that's your response to this kind of preaching. I realize there's a few of you like that. But then there's others of you and you are absolutely begging for me to help you make sense of this because the whole idea feels like a squishy marshmallow. It's too soft. It's too cushy. You're struggling to stay engaged with the idea of loving one another, being told over and over and over again that God loves you and you love another and then you make the whole cycle of God's love. The biblical picture of love is completed when you love one another and you're going, that's abstract to me. There's no specificity, Brett. Help me out. Some of you are like that. And then there's still others of you who wonder if if John, who wrote 1 John to his friends, the church that he's writing to, if he has any conception of them loving anyone outside of fellow followers of Jesus. Or or maybe that John is prescribing some kind of holy huddle. It's supposed to be a bit of a closed-off community. Okay, You're not alone if you're concerned about either of those things. Remember, the idea of loving one another springs from the command of Jesus. This is a command that he issues on the night before he is crucified. He gives this command to his disciples 50 years before John writes this letter. He gives this command in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? This is a sufficient answer for those of you who don't need any further instruction aside from love one another. You here love one another and your love tank is filled and now you want to go and pour out to everybody else. And that's wonderful. Thank God for people like you. This is also a good answer for those of you who are worried about getting a little turned in on ourselves as a community of a bit of a holy huddle where we're just concerned about the way that we treat one another, right? You're seeing that this is not only about us. This is about our witness in the world. The way we love one another tells people what Jesus is like. They will know who I am, right? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, if you love one another, it says. Okay. I think there's an evangelistic missional impulse that goes with that. It's very, very important to who we are as God's people in the city of Vancouver. It's true. But what about those of you who want a more concrete plan on how to do this? Right? Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
So pay attention because the context of him giving this command in John chapter 13 is very important. Jesus said this to his disciples right after he washed their feet. The love that Jesus modeled on the night that he gave this commandment was a servant-hearted love. It was a humble love. It was a love that leads him to a sacrificial death in our place. That's the kind of love that Jesus is commanding for his disciples. I think there's nothing more concrete than that. Now, Jesus taught his disciples to love one another, yes, but he also taught them to love their enemies, the strangers, the foreigners, the people who were not like them. Jesus also expounded upon the Ten Commandments in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, among other places that we see in the Gospels, meaning that there are actually concrete ways to love one another, and it sounds a lot like loving, right? Loving one another sounds a lot like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or any of your neighbor's stuff. Right? Then he also goes on and he says things like you should love your, your, not just your neighbor, but love your enemies. He says you should live with generosity. You should pay attention to the whole kingdom manifesto of the good life, the blessed life, and what it looks like. And we see all of that in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches all of these things. They're all an overflow of what God has commanded his people all the way from the book of Genesis onward. And if you're not sure how to ground all of this soft and squishy idea of loving one another and and really what that looks like, can I just compel you, can I just encourage you to look at Jesus? Like, this week... Just just decide something right now in this moment. Put down your phone, mute your social media, turn off your Netflix, stop obsessing over the bad news around us, and read the Gospels. Look at how he loved the Father. Look at how he loved others and follow him. Because Christ City, God never commands us to do anything that he doesn't also empower us to do. He never asks us to do something that we cannot do if we depend upon him in the empowerment of his spirit. See, the love of God that is extended to us, that is meant to then be extended to others, is not supposed to be squishy and impractical and undefinable. It is meant to be concrete and practical and well-defined. Karen Jobes said, love for others is not a sentimental emotion or merely getting along. It is living in right relationship with others by not murdering, not stealing, not giving false testimony and the like, and by meeting the needs of others for life's sustaining provisions. So we see all through the scriptures that we can love one another and we can love the world around us and we can love our enemies. We can love the widows and the orphans and the refugees and the addicts and the homeless and the outcasts. We can love one another and rich people and successful people and professionals and Uber drivers and janitors and school teachers and stay-at-home moms who are terrified that the playgrounds are going to be closed. We can love everyone everywhere. I think that's concrete. When Paul the Apostle wanted to be concrete with his directions to the church in Corinth, which was a messy group of folks, he said in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, he said, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And if you're sitting there right now and you go, Brett, that's not practical enough. Too squishy. No problem. Somebody relationally close to you probably thinks that's a really practical first step for you to start with. Um, Maybe you could give it a try, um, but I'll keep going for you. When Paul the Apostle wanted to be concrete with his directions to the church in Philippi, he pointed them to Jesus and he said in Philippians chapter 2 verse 2, he said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being uh, in full accord and of one mind. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ City, the concrete example of how to love one another is to follow Jesus. Like practically, humble yourself, serve one another, care for one another, Call one another. Be concerned for the welfare of others. Lay down your life to serve each other. Wash one another's feet. Complete the love of the Father as he extends it to you in Christ and as you extend it to others in Christ. Recognize that you are fulfilling the biblical shape of love in the present moment in concrete ways. Love, now obedience. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John sharpens the message really nicely for us here. He defines love for God as obedience to his commands. John defines love for God as obedience to his commands. And listen, John did not invent the idea. Don't hate Apostle John. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you're sitting there, you go, All right, Jesus. Which ones? He says, all of them. And you go, right. I I hear you. That was 2,000 years ago. Do I keep the ones I don't like? Yes. And you go, hey, why? Because they're not burdensome. Listen, because I think this is a really big deal for us. Love and obedience are not opposing forces that are trying to pull you in two different directions. The end of verse 3 says his commandments are not burdensome. 
See, God defines in Scripture what is good and what is sin. His commands are for our good, and obedience to his commands are the mark that we actually know him and love him. But we live in a world that disagrees with God's definition of what is good and what is sin. And when the culture that we live in calls sin good and calls what God calls good bad, we need to make sure that we know whose voice we are paying attention to. Again, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So when you are tempted to intentionally and knowingly go about disobeying God's commands, which are good and for your good and are not burdensome, I just want to ask us the question, what are we really saying when we live like that? I think there's a number of answers to the wrong response to God's commands. I, I think there are a number of answers. One of them that we probably wouldn't say out loud is that I know better. I don't want to do what I've been commanded. I know better. It's the tyranny of self-sovereignty that we've inherited in our generation of self-actualization and independence. I think I know better, so I'll do what I want. We, we might say something like, I'll be true to myself. What are we saying when we intentionally disobey God's good commands that, again, are not burdensome? Well, we might be saying, I think they are burdensome and antiquated, and I don't really need to pay attention to this section of God's word. I'll just take it, I'll box it up, I'll pretend it's not there, I'll, I'll take the razor blade, cut that out of the pages of my Bible, and then I won't have to pay attention to it, and my life will be easier and better, because that's burdensome. I'm just telling you, don't do that, that's a lie. That, that, that is here for us, for our good and his glory. And when we cut pages out of our Bible, it is to our detriment and it dishonors him. Again, there's a number of correct responses to the wrong response. Wrong responses to God's commands. One of them might be, I have pain you don't know about. And I have compassion for that. And Jesus had compassion for that. The disobedience to his good commands will not help you heal from the hidden pain that no one else knows about. Charles Spurgeon said there are many sorts of broken hearts and Christ is good at healing them all. Again, there are innumerable answers to this question. But fundamentally, here's what it comes down to and here's what I'm driving at. If I say I love him, but I don't want to obey what he commands... I don't trust him. If I say I love him, but I don't think that my disobedient drunkenness or greed or sexual sin or gluttony or lying or anger or slander or drug use or, or whatever it is, if I don't think those things are sin, then I functionally don't trust God that his commands are for my ultimate good. I also don't believe he is holy as he is revealed to be. Christ said his commandments are not burdensome. Think of it like this. This is what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love this passage. I live in this passage. His yoke is easy. He's not asking too much of us to obey his commands. His burden is light. He's not heaping a burden on us that we cannot carry. No, you've got to understand and see the picture with me. The picture, a yoke, is this device that, that two oxen, it would unite them together when they wanted to pull a wagon or a plow. And if you wanted these animals to walk in tandem together, you would put a yoke across their shoulders and you would yoke them together and they would be tied together. Often a younger or weaker ox was teamed up with an older, stronger one in order to teach it how to plow and to pull with vigor and strength. And it's in this picture that we see that Jesus Christ, the strong one, invites us, the weak and the helpless, to join his yoke. This means we submit to him and his strength. We put ourselves in absolute dependence upon him. We do not go in and out of the yoke, but we stay yoked with Jesus. We don't march to the beat of our own drum. We walk in tandem with him and his yoke is easy. Walking in a yoke with Jesus is almost as though he just sort of picks us up and carries us. His commands aren't burdensome. The burden is light. Jesus' commands are no more burdensome to us than wings are burdensome to a bird. And we have to believe that. Obedience to God's commands in our life are the pathway to freedom and flourishing. Again, think of it like this. Every worldview that you see operating around you in the city of Vancouver Every single one of them has commands that you need to obey to be considered in. If you want to be part of the team, you need to obey those commands. It's not just Christianity that comes with some ways to live. See, everything that you want to live for will demand something of you and from you in return. There are always commands to obey. That is not the question we need to ask. The question is, are they burdensome? If you think Jesus' expectations on your life to obey his commands are burdensome, I I would ask you to try carrying some of the new and burdensome commands of culture. You want to fit in? You want to be accepted? Those are some burdensome commands that come along with that. If you think a Christian view of the world is exclusive and demanding, I I would just say get into a deep conversation with somebody who holds a secular view of justice at the moment. You will find new burdensome commands that you must obey to be accepted. See if the burdensome commands of secular power structures are accommodating to your Christian beliefs. See how that goes for you. The burdensome commands of some of your employers are out of control. Every time you're asked to deny your beliefs and change your language on social and religious issues, you are being asked to pay the price for obeying a burdensome command. Try and serve in a medical system right now that wants you to celebrate abortion and euthanasia and tell them that you don't agree with that. I'll tell you the burdensome commands will come. And you'll be asked to capitulate 
to the prevailing view. Try and serve in the public education system where sexual orientation and gender identity, the SOGI curriculum, is radicalized and getting more and more aggressive even as it's being taught to younger and younger students. Fitting in within that system, that is costly and burdensome. Try and obey the burdensome commands of succeeding in Vancouver's arts community. See, none of these things are impossible to do, but what do you have to give up to get there? The ideological burdensome commands of politics and media and government and publicly traded companies all over our city, they are increasing. And if you don't pay the price, then you risk getting canceled. Now, that is what a burdensome command calls for or sounds like. The commands of Jesus are only burdensome in the way that wings are burdensome to an eagle. The commands of Jesus are meant to cause you to flourish. Just live in the depth of God's love for you. Living with your arms wide open in obedience to the easy yoke and the light burden of Jesus will make you flourish in ways that you've never expected, but only if you trust God enough to walk by faith and obey him. That might sound hard and that might sound counterintuitive, and I'm telling you, test it. Test it and tell me I'm wrong. Love and obedience, but also victory. Verse 4 says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The answer to that beautiful rhetorical question is no one. All of us who follow Jesus, we can say amen to verses 4 and 5. We will overcome the world. Now, there are currently loads of books and blogs and Instagram accounts and podcasts and YouTubers who are going to promise you tips and tricks to get victory in the world. I know them all out there. Some of you share them on your social media feed regularly. There are lots of pseudo-spiritual gurus who want to tell you how to live and, and how to have a better life and how to overcome obstacles and how to be a better you and how to live your best life and how to achieve your goals and all of that. But let me tell you, no matter the demands and no matter the promises that they are making, the world cannot give us victory over the world. There are lots of power of positive thinking people who are currently crushing people under the weight of secular works-based victory right now. See, if you're not succeeding to them, it's because you're not focusing your positive energy on what you want from the universe. And it's your fault that your life sucks. That is tyranny. And that is the spirit of our age. One of my pastor friends, he and his wife have been sharing the gospel with one of their neighbors. She's not doing very well. She's suffering greatly through this season of isolation. And she came and knocked on their door. And she was shaking when she arrived. And he said, oh, you need to go for a walk? She said, please. She said, we'll, we'll come pray for you. And as they walked together, she said, I've spent all day in my apartment and I've got post-it notes all over my house reinforcing positive statements about who I am and I'm falling apart. 
The power of positive thinking is tyranny because any failure is your fault. All suffering is meaningless and deserved. But Jesus will set you free to serve him. And I'm telling you, his commands are not burdensome. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You don't have to live on the whims of whether you're having a good day or a bad day. You can be carried along by the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Jesus spoke to his disciples the night that he was betrayed. And the night before he was crucified, he, he said in John 16, 33, In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That's how John knows for certain that all who have been born of God, who have God as their father, will overcome the world. Now, don't hate me for this, because I know that the overcoming victory that I'm trying to talk about here, I know that's not as simple as it sounds coming from this pulpit. I know full well that my job standing here is the easiest place in the entire city to serve Jesus. I get it. And I know that Jesus said we would have trouble in the world. I also know that he said he would never leave us nor forsake us. But can I suggest that what I think the letter of 1 John's telling us here, okay, I, I think he's showing us what the pathway to victory looks like. You're going to love this. Here's, here's how to get our victory. It's accepting the work of Jesus in our place, the one who atoned for our sin and has made a way for us to be born again to a living hope, to eternal life. That's the first thing. But, but, but in this text, it's loving God and loving one another. And it's trusting God and obeying his commands. We will overcome there is victory in our faith, in the object of what we believe, because Christ is sufficient for everything we would ever need. Now, I've never pretended that Christianity is complicated. I've also never pretended it's easy. I say this all the time. Christianity is simple. It's not easy. Without trust in Christ, though, without faith in the risen Christ, even the most successful, positive-thinking, yogi, guru, lifestyle, blogger, Instagram, influencer, spiritual guide, without Christ, they're going to die and you can go visit their grave. Every guru of every age has decomposing bones or scattered ashes in this world, but we serve the Jesus who rose bodily from the grave. That changes everything. That is where my victory lies. As you get ready to celebrate communion with your house church, just get the bread and the wine prepared. When we take hold of the elements in communion, we grab the bread, the body of Jesus broken for our sin. We take hold of the wine, the cup, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. When we celebrate this, what are we doing? What are we doing? The scriptures tell us that every time we celebrate this communion meal, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen Savior who is returning. You may not feel like you're walking in victory right now, but what I just taught is true. It's right from the pages of the Bible. 
And if you trust God, love one another. Obey his commands that are not burdensome. I'm just telling you, it only gets better. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of trial, trusting God is what will be the anchor that draws you through. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity it is to come face to face with the reality of Christ as we see him revealed in Scripture. How 50 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we've got John writing, reiterating the commands of Christ as he heard them on the night before Jesus was crucified. He heard these commands and issued them to the church, and here we are today, 2,000 years later, on the west coast of North America, celebrating this truth. Lord, would you sustain us? Would you hold us? Would you help us to break the shackles of the tyranny of all of these other things around us? And would you help us to walk with Jesus, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light? Holy Spirit, come now. I pray right now in this moment, wherever we're seated, wherever we're standing, wherever we're walking, wherever we're listening, wherever we're watching, would you just reveal yourself to us in power now in Jesus' name?